1: That's betterhelp.com. Today, we've got a story about a slow-burning standoff. On one side, people angrily demanding the right to graze livestock on federal land. On the other side, government officials determined to uphold the laws that say no. Tensions reached the boiling point earlier this week. Get out of here. You'd be forgiven for thinking that this story takes place in the western United States, Wyoming or Nevada.
3: We haven't lost this battle. We're we'll just barely begin.
1: U.S. Rangers that this is another Clive and Bundy tale about ranchers and militiamen refusing to pay taxes or taking arms against the Bureau of Land Management.
4: The
2: public land belongs to we, the people of Clark County. I want to share that land with them. It's not my land, it's your land. <laughs>
1: But this isn't a uniquely American tale. And our story today takes place thousands of miles away from the U.S. borders in a place called the Tirtan Valley in India, just outside the borders of the Great Himalayan National Park. Did you go into the park itself?
5: It's interesting. Um, I actually did not.
1: This is freelance journalist Yardane Amron. He traveled to the Tirton Valley in 2019 and 2020.
5: It's a long one and a half, it potentially, I mean, it depends how fast you go, but potentially one and a half day trek to the entrance, the, the official entrance of the uh-huh. park. And so this actually is, is a strategic when the, the park designers like that design because it keeps people out of the park.
1: Today, the Great Himalaya National Park is one of India's famous natural treasures, a growing vacation destination, a picturesque remote getaway. But before anybody was ever invited to visit the park, the people who created it first had to tell the locals to leave. This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Justine Paradise. Today's episode is the first of two stories produced by freelance journalist Yardane Amron. First up, the Himalayan land grab.
2: Let us try to grab this area. Let us try to grab this area
6: under a PA system. You know, what is the big deal? Why, why do you need to separate nature from culture?
1: What exactly happened when the Indian government drew a border around this unique mountainous landscape? and told the locals to keep out. When you
2: create the park and you make bands of all kinds, what are these people in the villages in the 10-kilometer radius going to do?
5: The Great Himalaya National Park in India is about a quarter the size of Yosemite. But the way the mountains wind and sweep across the horizon, it looks and feels endless. There are alpine meadows, glaciers, dense old growth forests. The park is home to mosses and lichen, blue sheep, musk deer, and the endangered western tragopan, a pheasant that looks like a mix between a chicken and a tropical bird of paradise. But national parks are defined by two things. First, an abundance of wildlife and majestic landscapes. And second, no permanent human presence. It's that second part that has been so contentious here. And also why it took two whole decades to make the park a reality. Four whole villages were relocated in order to create this uninhabited wilderness. But even more complicated are the 150 villages right alongside the border. Some 15,000 people who weren't relocated, but who before the creation of the park had relied on these forests for centuries. Villagers with an intimate, entangled relationship to the natural world around them, and no real concept of Western-style conservation, of protecting nature from humans. When the Indian government inaugurated the Great Himalayan National Park in 1999, these villagers were dispossessed of their land and their livelihoods. And what the architects of the park hoped would be a celebration turned into something very different. Widespread protest. So how did it get to that point? Well, national parks aren't made overnight. And in the case of the GHNP, it's a process that began about 15 years earlier, in the late 80s. At that time, people living in the Tirtan Valley had free reign over the lands that bordered their villages.
3: Those people were very poor. And, you know, it's not as if they were well-to-do and this was not something you could take away from them. I mean, the herb collectors, for example, came in hundreds, sometimes thousands to collect herbs from all over.
5: Villagers brought their livestock to feed in the alpine meadows... They hunted for food, collected plants and herbs for firewood, medicine, or to sell for profit. They visited their gods who lived for part of the year inside the forest.
3: In the good old days, the GHNP staff couldn't stop or even think of stopping. Thousands of people who went in for herb collection, <laughs> thousands of sheep which went in for grazing, there was no question of stopping them. This is Shekhar
5: Singh, by the way a trailblazer of India's environmental movement, who worked for the government at the time. When the process of creating the park first went public in the mid-90s, it was his job to try and get all of the bordering villagers to stop doing these things. But remember, they relied on these lands. Food and fodder and firewood are a matter of survival. So Shekhar couldn't simply ban them from entering. Instead, the aim was to change their way of life.
3: The basic principle was this that you have to find alternate sources of income, which are, if anything, easier and preferable to the ones in which they use in the parks and sanctuaries. This strategy
5: is called eco-development. The phrase was coined during the UN's first General Assembly on the Environment in the 1970s. The idea is that development, in the Global South anyway, had to be mindful of the environment. Shekhar knew he couldn't get all of the villagers on board at first, but that wasn't the point.
3: But if he can get maybe 10% or 15% of the people, stop going inside. So what would happen is the time that they would not be out there, they could use to earn more money. So as people saw that these people were getting better off.
5: More and more people would join, Shekhar hoped, as people saw this new way of life. The 10 kilometers in the border area, home to some 15,000 villagers, was dubbed the eco-zone, eco as in ecological, but mostly eco as in economic, better living through capitalism.
3: You know, let me tell you one thing, uh, uh, it was a day-to-day planning. It was not one of those things where we sat down and said, right, this is the plan, now go and do it.
5: Shekhar and his team weren't on their own. They had more than a million dollars in outside funding from the World Bank, an organization that had high ambitions for this type of what they saw as sustainable development. And so, in partnership, they set to work. They made little plantations outside the park for medicinal herbs, firewood, and fodder. They did a flurry of market surveys to figure out what kind of alternative livelihoods were viable. Things like handicrafts, apricot oil, vermicomposting, ecotourism. They held village-level meetings and used participatory techniques like where everyone gets a stone and votes by throwing it in a basket. In principle, these village development committees were supposed to be inclusive, to give locals agency about how their lives would change. But the local people whose lives were to change, they were divided about the park and eco-development. Some saw opportunity for their remote valley, but many more were skeptical
3: the thing was that there was deep suspicion of government, people felt you know all this is all right but today you're promising it but tomorrow the whole thing falls through. So it's not easy, in fact let me tell you I think we only had 30-40% success. I think in over 50% of the cases we were not able to really read what people really wanted. But the only thing I would say is that we were fortunate that we got Sanjeeva Pandey there.
2: So when I joined, when I saw what WorkBent was doing, I was really, really aghast, so to say.
5: This is Sanjeev Pandey, who in 1998 became park director of the Work in Progress GHNP. By this point, hundreds of thousands of dollars and countless hours had been spent trying to transition local villagers away from subsistence living but the effort was not going well. I was
2: really just thinking, I, and I talked to these World Bank people, what are you doing? I mean, this is not the way to do things. They, I mean, they were kind, uh, kind of distributing doles, no? like- Wait, it's giving them what? Sorry, I didn't- um, Dole, D-O-L-E, dole. Dole is actually the, what you say, the beggar is asking for dole.
5: A dole, spelled D-O-L-E, like the banana company, is British English slang for a government benefit. In this case, stoves, handlooms, televisions, pressure cookers, lanterns. In his book, Conservation Refugees, Mark Dowie calls this tactic cargo conservation or the exchange of commodities for compliance. Worse yet, an audit of the Eco Development Funds found that 70% had been spent not on alternative livelihoods for the people, but on park infrastructure. The headquarters, guard towers, rain shelters, office complexes, even a nature interpretation center filled with life-size models of different wildlife that you can find inside the park. Sanjeev Pandey knew the World Bank Funds had been misused, but he was a true believer in the overall mission of conservation, of keeping people and developers out of the park. India is a fast-growing nation, and conservation, he believes is the most effective way to protect places like the Tirutan Valley. Here he is from a documentary about the park called Turf Wars, talking about protected areas, what he refers to as a PA system.
2: The writing is on the wall. If you don't go there, if you don't uh, keep these uh, wilderness areas under a PA system, then people are going to be there. A whole lot of developmental activities will be there.
5: For conservationists like Sanjeev, the problem fundamentally is people. We humans are the virus that nature needs protection from.
2: So before that happens, let us try to grab this area. Let us try to grab this area under a PA system.
5: But this land grabbing approach was the exact mentality that conservationists were supposedly trying to move away from Around the world, some 15 million people, almost all indigenous, have been displaced by national parks and other protected areas. And critics of this conservation-as-development approach argue that the problem isn't people in general, especially not indigenous people with their relatively small footprints. The problem is that by pushing people from their local economy into a global market economy, eco-development would actually introduce more commercialization in the area which, in the long run, would increase pressure on the park. Here's Shekhar again, that leader in India's environmental movement. He knew this, about how conservation can impact indigenous communities, but says he felt stuck.
3: So I thought very hard of this criticism, because we had formal uh, opposition. I felt that in the long run they were correct. But there was an inevitability about it which I didn't know what to do. But suppose I had said, we're not going to do eco-development out here. I think the pressures would have grown even faster and in a worse way, but I didn't see a way out of it. I recognize and agree in fact with the dilemmas that you've raised, but what is the answer?
1: outside in. We'll be right back after our break.
4: Hey, everybody. It's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or... Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off.
4: Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater. And this is your wake-up call.
1: This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. Today, freelance journalist Yardane Amron reports on the story of the Great Himalayan National Park, the creation of which was a process that first began in the mid-1980s. But inventing a national park is hard, especially when the people living with it aren't too fond of the idea. Here's Yardane.
5: By the time Sanjeev took over the park in 1998, Officials were drawing down what had so far reportedly been a soft approach to enforcement, and acting in response to stricter laws passed in the country, moving to harder ones. They weren't just trying to convince folks not to go into the park. They were actively policing its borders, or at least trying to.
2: So they were forest guards uh, tell, starting to tell people that, okay, you cannot enter this. From this area, you cannot enter this area. So there was a lot of conflict because they didn't understand what's going on. They were dependent on the forest.
5: This is Narottam Singh. My friend Vibha is translating for us, by the way. Narottam is a local who became one of the first forest guards of the GHNP. He grew up in the Tirthan Valley, and the job was a big opportunity, but it also pitted him against his own friends and neighbors. <laughs>
2: When you create the park and you make bands of all kinds, what are these people in the villages in the 10-kilometer radius going to do? In
5: 1999, as the park headed towards official inauguration, tensions boiled over. Protests spread up and down the Tirtan. Park signage was destroyed, and the gate to the headquarters was pulled down. Effigies of Sanjeev were burned, and a rumor spread, more of an allegory actually, that a leopard had been imported and released in the park. That it fed especially on goats and sheep, and that a tag in its ear read Made in America. Narotam found himself square in the middle of it all.
2: So it was a very odd time for me because I had to make a living, I had to eat food, I had to feed my family. So I was getting that from the park, from the job. And I wanted to walk the path of the government, whatever the vision they had, and I thought maybe it was right, but I wasn't sure. And on the other hand, it was my fellow brothers from the villages, and they were protesting. So it was a very period of great conflict for me because I didn't understand what they were suffering, what they, what they wanted, what was not being met.
5: In a climactic move on August 15, 1999, timed with India's Independence Day, locals broke the park boundary with their livestock. They marched their animals into areas they used to graze with no consequences. Fines were administered, arrests were made, and the Forest Department even threatened to call in paramilitary forces. A similar protest in 1982 by locals at a national park in Rajasthan ended with the police opening fire and killing nine people. This sound, by the way, also comes from the documentary Turf Wars. Vasan Sabraval was one of Turf Wars producers. He told me that many park planners believe subsistence living is an outmoded and uncivilized way of life.
6: And so any notion of, you know, we want to work with communities, we want to use eco-development, we want to uh, do things jointly, Rubbish because up front you believe these people to be simple minded simpletons who need to who who need uh, advice and expertise and they need to be shown the way.
5: Intentions aside, Sabarva believes villagers have never been given a satisfying explanation as to why they should have to leave or adapt. How can their home be an oasis but also
6: require protection from the very people who've safeguarded it? And so, when you talk to people, and suggest that their use of the park leads to degradation. They they say that, you know, we've been using these resources for the past 150, 200 years. If our presence here has been such a threat, why would there be biological diversity over here? For local communities who live alongside elephants and tigers and leopards, they don't get. You know, what is the big deal? Why, why do you need to separate nature from culture? Why, why is that so... Critical.
5: In late 1999, despite the outcry from locals, the Indian government officially opened up the Great Himalayan National Park. It was framed by some as a success. But in 2002, the World Bank admitted in a report that the sustainable development experiment had failed. Many, if not most, of the families living in the ecozone were still reliant on the park for food and fuel. Alternative ways to make a living didn't take or weren't wanted in the first place. The village development committees were totally defunct. In their report, the World Bank consultants wrote, project-financed investments in the Great Himalayan National Park tended to be routine forestry works without imagination, without community involvement, and without clearly targeted linkages to conservation. In another section about forest departments and NGOs, the report said, quote, the institutions created were neither inclusive nor transparent nor accountable to communities. Mostly, the authors blamed the, quote, unsatisfactory performance of the implementing agency, a.k.a. the Indian government. was a convenient conclusion for the bank, absolving itself of any blame. Nonetheless, today, the Great Himalayan National Park is considered by and large a huge success story. Not because of eco-development per se, but
6: because of eco-tourism. In the last episode of my Offbeat Himachal series, I trekked to the Great Himalayan National Park. I
0: love the fact that all these houses are so old and there's not a single modern structure.
6: Kicked the locals
5: out, but let the tourists in?
4: Tourism, spoil. It spoils.
6: These people weren't working before. Some of them were never have never worked. That's what you need to do. Mm. You need to create jobs. You need to create employment for them.
5: That's next week on Outside In. <laughs>
1: This episode of Outside In is the first of two parts reported by Yardane Amron about the creation and the transformation of the Great Himalayan National Park. This episode was produced by Yardane Amron and Taylor Quimby. It was edited by Taylor Quimby and me, Justine Paradise, with help from Felix Poon and Jessica Hunt. Our interim executive producer is Rebecca Lavoie. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder, and additional music in this episode came from Blue Dot Sessions. Please consider supporting stories like this one. Outside In is a member-supported show. It is made possible by people who listen and then decide to chip in. Maybe people like you? You can support the show at our website, outsideinradio.org. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio.
4: There are new episodes out every Thursday, so subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best.